All right, we are good to go. Um, let's bow our heads together, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Word this morning. Father, again, we come before you asking for your grace on us to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that understand and receive what you have to say. Pray that a, that this text would be an encouragement to your people, that we would take refuge in the Lord our God and uh, live to serve Him. May your word go forth with power and with precision today and uh, give us the wisdom to apply it, Lord. We do need your wisdom to know and to understand you. So we prevail upon your kindness. As your word says, if we lack wisdom, we are to ask you, and so we do, and trust you for growth and stability and a greater knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, drawn near the end of the first chapter. Our passage in focus covers verse 16 through 21, and as we uh, talked about last Lord's Day, we've kind of split this up into two major sections as our sermon title um, implies. It's called The Witness and the Word, Proclaiming the Power of Christ's Return. So we started uh, at the witness, really the first pillar, uh, last Lord's Day, and uh, hopefully next time we will, we will get to the Word, and that will be covered by verses 19 through 21. But let's familiarize ourselves with the text, so please follow along as I read. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I, I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And may God be blessed by the reading of His Word. So we kind of ended up in a little uh, expositional pickle last Lord's Day. We had four primary uh, points we were trying to cover uh, based on our study of verses 16 through 18. We got through three of them, and rather than trying to really awkwardly uh, cover that last point and then really get into pillar number two, which is the word itself, verses 19 through 20, we would rather awkwardly try to expand on this final point which encompasses uh, a study of verse 18. So with that, we can take the occasion of digging a little more deeply into this text to kind of understand what's going on instead of treating uh, Peter's reference to the Mount of Transfiguration as merely background material. We can, we can look into it into a little more depth in this study. So 
but we want to refresh our memories concerning the uh, primary themes uh, in, this, in this particular portion of text. Remember, uh, the event that Peter is looking forward to is described in verse 16 as the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the basic interpretation was is that Peter is trying to encourage these first century saints, really this, a smattering of several churches throughout Asia, Asia Minor, who are undergoing uh, uh, the pressure from false teachers uh, from within as well as persecution from without. But among these uh, persecutions is a, is, a, is a mockery toward this impending arrival, this parousia, this presence of Christ. And so this coming in power of our Lord Jesus Christ points not to a future event, but for us points back to an event that has already occurred. And that is Christ showing up both in judgment and salvation where He puts, begins putting His enemies under His feet. This is none other than the A.D. 70 destruction of Jerusalem uh, meted out upon them by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And as I said before, I, I realize not everyone takes that view, nor do you have to take that view. Uh, this is simply the view that I present, and I believe that it is pretty significant to our understanding, uh, not only of eschatology, but our understanding of how should we then live. We have to understand that for, for every Scripture, there is an application. Yes, we want to understand what it means, but then from that, we want to draw out truth in which we can apply to our, our lives as Christians, to our lives as, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say, as I pressed last week, that even though this is an event that has happened historically, it does not in any way um, minimize the application that it has for us today. That we live our lives as the church in light of these events. We live our lives in, the, in, in light of Christ's advancing kingdom, and in light of Him exercising victory over His enemies. So it's incredibly relevant to our position, our identification as His people today. And I'll encourage you a second time, when it comes to passages like this that can often uh, prove difficult, uh, be a diligent student of the Word, do your own homework, and uh, ask for uh, God to give you wisdom in understanding His Scripture, and I'm sure that he, he will. So we are these witnesses. We are these witnesses, and we are proclaiming the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as, we, as I mentioned, we break this down into four primary responsibilities. Even though the Lord Jesus has shown up in judgment and, con and continues, even in real time, to exercise judgment over His enemies and to save His enemies through the proclamation of of the Gospel of Christ, we have particular commands, particular responsibilities that we can draw from this text as a testimony, as a testimony to the work of Christ in this world. So going back to our title, the witness and the word. We are witnesses as well. That is the application from seeing the witness of, of Peter and the people who stand shoulder to shoulder with him as he is describing this eventual uh, coming in power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find that there are four things, and here was the first one. We'll recap these very quickly and then get into the remainder of the text this morning. So the first one was this. To proclaim the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be a witness to the truth. 
And note that Peter says in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. That is, Peter is simply saying, even though we are accused of doing such, we are not making this up. These are not things that we conjured up, right? We, we did not uh, sit down and write a story and really invest the time to, to make up certain parts of this tale. Because as time has gone by since Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, uh, it has come up that various players within the church are starting to deny that Christ will ever show up in judgment. And that is something that the first century church was awaiting. Jesus himself told his disciples, this, remember, this generation will see this occur. So time goes by, and unfortunately, time is one of those things that can be a catalyst for mockery, a catalyst for denial, right? A, ca a catalyst for unbelief. Whereas the people of God are simply uh, called to look at it as a time of patient endurance. And so when we read the, the second letter of Peter, we can, we can see that all over the place, that Peter is encouraging them to continue to be faithful, to continue to, to, to proclaim the gospel, and to wait and see that Jesus Himself will show up to judge His enemies and to continue to save His church and to advance His kingdom. But that is the truth that we proclaim. So it falls upon us to not, be, not, not deviate from the mission of the Gospel, to not be distracted by cleverly devised tales, to not look for something that is, that is fanciful right, or imaginative. I was going to draw an illustration from this very production of this school, the Willy Wonka, right? In, in, in the old Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, I believe Willy Wonka sings something along the lines of, there's no place in this world that compares to your imagination. And that can be a very dangerous thing, that once you deviate from the rock-solid truth of the Gospel, you can imagine some cr crazy kinds of things. Start, start making your own truth, right? Start making, building your own gospel. Something that maybe sounds better or more palatable or more pleasing to the, to the ear. I mean, there is no place in this world, sometimes no, no more terrifying than the human imagination when we reject the Lordship of Christ and the good news of His gospel. So this is also a warning to the church that we preach the truth. That's a big deal. The church is to be recognized by proclaiming the truth and not to lie even when it's convenient. Not to deviate from it, not to twist it, right? not, to, not to throw out those things that are offensive, but to stand in boldness and proclaim the truth in power. It's one of those important things. Even, even Paul tells in one of his letters, stop lying to each other. Right? This is something characteristic of your life outside of Christ, but now we are to be known as truth-tellers. Right? That's our, that's our currency. It is the truth. And as we tell the truth, we point people toward the truth, and that is Jesus Christ. So that's the first one. So also to proclaim the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be a witness to His glory. And of course, Peter begins here by relating that story on the Mount of Transfigurations, he says, we're not making up things, we are telling the truth. We, are eye we were eyewitnesses. We, we saw it and we're simply proclaiming the things we saw. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Well, what majesty was that? Well, Christ transfigured. Basically, a preview of how Christ would turn up in glory. So what the disciples beheld was Christ basically in, in His glorified form, if you will. They were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And so that became 
a key point in their witness that as Christ revealed Himself to them on the Mount of Transfiguration, He gave them a preview of when He would come in power. We talked about that last Lord's Day. He would come in power. So you have sort of a partial fulfillment on the Mount of Transfiguration, but what it really served to do was to show the disciples of basically on full blast how Christ would appear in glory to judge the nations, beginning with apostate Israel. And so, as he says, we were witness to his glory, a, ma- a magnificent glory. You could say a mega glory, a mega glory, a, a great glory, used to describe God's magnificent and brilliant presence. Now, this was sort of this was a frightening thing to behold the glory of God, to behold him in his radiant presence. I mean, even Moses, who was in very close proximity to to the presence of God, had to be placed in the cleft of the rock so he could not see the very face of God. And yet he beheld the glory. We see that enumerated in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his throne, right in the train of his robe, fills the temple with glory. He beheld his presence. Even John 12, 41 talks about that. About Isaiah saying what he did, testifying it because he saw his glory and spoke about God. Right? So there is in our minds this amazing presence of God to be beheld and to be not only amazed by, but to really treasure the fact that God is with his people. That he is a glorious God. In Deuteronomy 33.26, we read this, There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in His majesty. Right? There is really something remarkable to behold when it comes to God showing up. In Acts 7.2, even Stephen calls Him the God of glory who appeared to Abraham. So that is something that is familiar to those who who are familiar with the Scriptures, right? That God is a God of glory. You can't really know God apart from knowing that He is a glorious God. But He is magnificent. Paul calls Him the Father of glory in Ephesians 1.17. That God and His glory are inseparable. And here we understand it in terms of this radiant presence and how appropriate. In, in, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of His nature. If you want to know God, if you want to know God in His glory, then look no farther than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the appearance that He made as described by the majestic glory that, this, that the Father made this declaration, the Father being the majestic glory from heaven, saying, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And of course, that brings us to the third thing is that proclaiming the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be a witness for His kingdom. right? So when the Father declares this, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, He's not just saying that He, lo- that he likes Jesus. right? He's not just saying that Jesus has favor. He is declaring Jesus as His chosen King. We drew from Psalm 1-2 and 1-10. Also, Psalm 42 is our Scripture reading from today to demonstrate that this was a heavenly and royal decree of Christ's right to rule. 
and the Father's vindication of Him. If you write this passage down, it's one we quote often, but it sums up what it is that's going on here. Daniel 7.14 And to Him was given dominion. This is speaking of the Son, of the Son of Man. And to Him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the reason we bring that up and link it to Peter is that Peter in this passage is simply preparing his readers for what Daniel anticipated hundreds of years before. Peter's saying this this moment, this key moment in redemptive history is fast approaching. Even though unbelievers may say otherwise, it is on the horizon. It's right at the door. So don't, don't be swept away by these false teachers. Don't be like them. Call to mind what has been taught to you regarding the truth of the Gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ because what Daniel wrote is about to come true. It's exactly what Peter is pointing us to. And as Jesus is the beloved Son with whom God is well pleased, so He now is our Redeemer with whom we are well pleased. And so that is the kingdom. So we proclaim all these things. And these should come up when you are talking about the Gospel. Even when you're reminding yourself of it. Remind yourself of this often. And may it be may it be very present in your Gospel witness that you're telling the truth, you're proclaiming the glory of God, and you are proclaiming His kingdom. A kingdom that will not pass away and a kingdom that will inevitably spread and grow and expand to the ends of the earth. That is why it's so important for the church to reinforce these truths. We believe these things to be true. That the Gospel will continue to do its work. So here's the fourth and final thing. To proclaim the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be a witness to His presence. So we have the truth, we have the glory, we have His kingdom, and we also have His presence. And I will say before getting into the, the rest of the text this morning, that there is a strong correlation between the presence of God and His glory. You know, you see the glory of God, whether it be the cloud or the fire, or even a bright light, that signifies His presence. His presence, especially among His people. But the presence of God is a very precious thing to those who identify themselves as His covenant people. Think about it. Man was made, created to dwell in the presence of his Creator. To delight in knowing God and walking with God. I mean, sometimes I don't, I don't think we always think about perhaps the immeasurable heartbreak that Adam and Eve had to endure when they got kicked out of the garden. To go one day from walking with God in the cool of the day to being in His presence, even being naked and unashamed, the, the, the joy and satisfaction that must have brought, I, I, I reckon words can't even describe that. And yet that was something they lost. And in sin, all of Adam's race lost that as well. And yet, I think that desire still lingers There is a sense of incompleteness, right? There is a sense of loss that we all have until we are able to dwell in the presence of God once more. And so, 
this appearance of, or manifestation of Jesus in glory upon this mountain lends itself to recovering what it is to be dwelling or to be living in the presence of God. He says this in verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And so this gives us occasion to kind of look a little more closely at this actual narrative. And, and we realize that it is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But for our purposes this morning, let's turn, keep your thumb in Second Peter, but let's turn to Matthew 17, spend some time there this morning. Because I think we get a little more detail about how the presence of God comes to bear here before the disciples. So Matthew chapter 17, we start on verse 1, says this, and remember Jesus says in the previous verse, Matthew 16, 28, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So six days later, verse 1, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and His brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Okay. I think Mark mentioned something about how his clothes were so white, they were white as no launderer on earth could make a garment white. And then it says this, And behold, a Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. So we have the presence of two great Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah. Luke 9.31, to get some overlap here, says that Moses and Elijah were speaking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Translation, they were talking to Jesus about his death, right? his impending departure. So if we want to know subject matter, we look to Luke. So in verse 4, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So there, while there may be a, an allusion here to the Feast of Booths, uh, another, go, an, an, another different gospel says that Peter wasn't really sure what he was talking about. It seems like he was so awestruck about what he was seeing, being in the presence of his Lord in this manner, that he was really dumbfounded. He was tongue-tied, and this is something that kind of managed to come out. And then it says in verse 5, well, whatever we know is that Peter wanted to stay there. This was, a, this was a, 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 to him, a big ordeal. So verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, this is very important because it speaks about how people react to the presence of God. If you look at Luke 9.34, it says, they, the disciples, were afraid to enter the cloud. They were afraid to enter the cloud. And we think, well, why were they afraid to enter the cloud. Well, I think they knew their scriptures enough. There's a, there's a few passages that allude to this. That when, that when God brought His presence, His holy presence to bear, there was fear. I mean, we see that. We see that when God descends, right, to, 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 to give His law to His people, that in, in, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel were so scared. They were so terrified, they wouldn't go near the mountain lest they die. There was a very fear of death. So, the Lord had to Himself come down on the mountain to speak to them through Moses especially. But listen to Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 35. We kind of get an idea of this. Now this is at the end of Exodus, right? They've been given the law. 
the, the, the tabernacle's being finished, and it says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the cloud being the presence of God. The tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay, so that happens right now. The presence of God is dwelling in the midst, the middle of His people, right? Because the tabernacle was at the center of the camp of Israel. And it says, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and it says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. It seems as though Moses desired to enter, but he was not permitted. And he was not permitted because the glory, the presence had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So even though that is the, the response, that is the setting, what we do know, and we could say in, in a joyful manner, is that the presence of God was now with His people. And all the blessings commensurate with that. So even Moses himself, for a time, could not enter the tabernacle. In 1 verse, in verse Kings chapter 8, verses 10-11, through 11, we see a similar thing happen. And now, now we have the temple that is being completed. And it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Right? So in the temple, you had you know, the main grounds, then you had where the, the altar was, then you have the holy place, and then further back, you had the most holy place. So, the priests were coming from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, and then it says this, similar to Moses, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so you can understand uh, sort of the fear and trepidation that the disciples are experiencing right now. They are, they are scared because of the cloud, because they understand is that that is the presence of God. See, not only do they hear the voice of God, uh, uh, basically vindicating the ministry of the Son and, and announcing His kingdom, but His presence is coming to bear. Not just His voice, but His very presence. Now listen to Exodus 14.19, because I think this paints a beautiful picture of what the disciples are experiencing. In Exodus 14.19, we read this. And remember, Israel is being led right now through the desert. It says, Then the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud, again, the pillar, the cloud of glory, the presence of God, moved from before them and stood behind them. So you have this very same scene playing out before the disciples. The angel of God or the angel of the Lord is typically seen as a pre-incarnate appearance or manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there He is with Israel. There's other Scriptures that say that the, the angel of the Lord led the people of Jerusalem. So He is there present with them. And in a very similar fashion, there He is now as the incarnate Lord of heaven and earth, as Jesus Christ, with the cloud, with His disciples. So this would definitely conjure up some, some scenes from the Old Testament. But what is so important to understand here is that the disciples are with Jesus and they are beholding the presence of God. The glorious presence of God. Though scared, they remain. Listen to Matthew Henry's comment on Exodus 14.19. 
The cloud covered the tabernacle even in the clearest day. It was not a cloud which the sun scatters. This cloud was a token of God's presence to be seen day and night by all Israel. That they might never again question, is the Lord among us or is He not? And unfortunately, one of the sins that Israel committed was in, in that, even in that very same episode and through the desert was questioning the presence of the Lord, impugning His holiness, doubting His care and devotion toward them. And so this call to the church remains the very same. We now have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the presence of God dwelling among us, in us, and with us, so that we might never again question, is the Lord among us? That we might never call into question His presence and His commitment with and to us. And so moving on in this narrative in Matthew 17, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So we went over that last week, proclaiming His Son that this, this is a royal decree that His Son is going to be Lord and King. And He says, listen to Him. Listen to His voice. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. So now Moses and Elijah have faded and now they see Jesus. And what, and what, in, what an encouragement to hear God in the flesh say, do not be afraid. Right? You're not going to die. I am with you. Do not be afraid. Let me tell you something. When God Himself says, do not be afraid, you, you don't be afraid. You have, you, you have completely shattered any other reason to be afraid when God tells you, do not be afraid. It's a command, not a suggestion. So let's consider here Moses and Elijah because I think they play into our understanding of the presence. Moses and Elijah represent in this scene the law and the prophets, right? You have Moses representing the law, and you have Elijah, who arguably was the greatest or one of the greatest of the prophets, spoke to the people of God at a very pivotal time, a time of great spiritual apostasy. And on his word even caused the heavens to shut up so it didn't rain for years. But I think the point of Moses and Elijah making an appearance here is the fact that they both fade into Christ. Just as they fade away, so does their ministry, so does their Old Testament message fade into Christ. Think about the Law and the Prophets. What, what, what was the purpose of the Law and the Prophets ultimately? Right? They revealed the Word of God. In terms of the Law, we had the Word of God written down. And then in terms of Elijah, we had the Word of God proclaimed and spoken. And now, before the disciples, we have the living Word. The living Word incarnate here. And so what that means is that Jesus stands, as the other two fade away, He stands as the ultimate expression of both of those things in addition to their fulfillment. What else did the Law and the Prophets do? They revealed how the people of God were to live in His presence. And so today, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we also are instructed how to dwell in the presence 
of God. And now Jesus, as this new and living way, not only teaches us how to live as God's holy people, but He is the very person through whom we have access to God's holy presence. Think about all the all that the Law and the Prophets had to say about Christ. It all points to Him. That's why we don't simply preach the Law alone. That's why we don't preach the Old Testament prophetic message alone. We teach it, but we teach it as all pointing to and being fulfilled in Christ. You know, we think about the Law as the Word of God, absolutely. But in Christ the Living Word, we see the Law fulfilled perfectly in both obedience to its statutes and also suffering the penalty in the place of those who broke it. Christ exemplifies what it means to delight in the law of God, to obey it, and now, of course, in Him we have the law of Christ. And in terms of the prophets, we have the great prophet, the great teacher who speaks forth God's will to us in His Word. The culmination of all that the prophets announced is exemplified is found in Christ. And so when God says to the disciples, listen to Him, He's clearly demonstrating that the Law and the Prophets give way to Christ. It's not that the Law and Prophets cease to have any kind of relevance. Not at all. There is continuity. But they give way to Christ in the sense that they point to Him. That Christ is the greater Word. That He is the greater Prophet. Right? And so now we enter into the presence of God in a new and living way through the blood of the new covenant. And so in this sense, this newness is replacing the old. And all of that is found in this simple narrative of Christ revealing Himself to His disciples. Don't think for a minute that the law and the prophets lose their value. I want to state very clearly that in Christ, their value is amplified. We should have a higher opinion of the law and the prophets because of what Christ accomplished, because of what He fulfilled in them. That's why, we're, that's why it said we don't reject the law, right? We don't undo the law. We don't undermine the law in Christ. In fact, we uphold it. We uphold it as justified by faith in Him. We uphold the law by the power of the Spirit, and it shows us just how precious God's commands are. Consider this, an article recently, a couple days ago, from thehill.com. Now, you're probably asking me, well, Jonathan, why are you reading The Hill? I don't know. I just found this article. But one of 13 original copies of the U.S. Constitution, this article says, sells at an auction for twice its estimated value. Listen to this. A private bidder put up close to $43.2 million to secure one of the 13 remaining copies from the Constitutional Convention. Think about it. How blessed would the church be if we valued the true law of liberty now in our own time? That is, the law of Christ. The law of liberty. The law of freedom. Right. We, took it, we typically look at the U.S. Constitution as being that staple document speaking of God-given rights. Speaking of the freedom of man. Right. Personal responsibility. And yet we find in Scripture that there is a greater law. There is a greater liberty that shouldn't fade with time. In fact, as time goes by, it should be more and more precious to us. And, and we have to look no further than the fact that Jesus Himself, in obeying it, upholding it, fulfilling it perfectly, 
makes it all the more valuable to us. So it's not something we simply put away and forget about. No, in Christ we, we uphold His commands. We teach His commands. And we love His commands. So this episode really reveals what it is to dwell in the presence of God. To dwell in His presence in a new and living way. And that is how we enter into that. And so this passage speaks of that that whole event. It's pretty interesting. You have a lot of parallels here between what Peter is uh, referencing and what actually Moses, Moses witnessed in a very similar fashion. As Moses beheld the glory of God, heard His voice on Sinai, so Peter along with James and John beheld the glory of God in human form, in human flesh. They heard the voice of the Father and were on this mountain. And I think this is the final portion of this that I want us to understand if you want to go back to our text in 2 Peter. It's kind of debating the, the order of attack this morning, but we do want to go over this text because I think it says something very important, important about the presence of God. Where do we actually get this theme of presence in verse 18? Look at the end of this verse. It says, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, right? So you have heaven, divine authority. When we were with Him on the holy mountain. Okay. Mountains play a very significant part of the biblical narrative. I mean, do a study for your own, for your own pleasure on, on, on the place of mountains in Scripture. Even on the place of mountains in redemptive history. I think a good case can be made for the fact that we see a mountain as early as the Garden of Eden. One thing we read about the Garden of Eden and where it was situated was that a river flowed out from it. So it was the source. It was a spring of life-giving water, if you will. How many of you have seen a river flow uphill? Rivers flow downhill. So what we can glean from that passage in in the opening uh, creation account is that we at least know that the Garden of Eden was in an elevated place. And it seems typical, as you read redemptive history, that mountains, in, in, in some way, shape, or form, represent a meeting place between God and man. And it represents where heaven and earth meet. Think about it, that's what was lost in the fall. Heaven and earth became two instead of one. As the man and his wife were cast from the garden. As I said, ever since then, it's like we've, we, we have this sense of shattered image, being, being image bearers in a shattered sense because we are alienated from the presence of God. And it is only through Christ where that presence can be recovered and restored and reconciled. But that's the first time we read of a mountain. We read about a mountain in uh, see Genesis 22, where the Lord tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and whom you are well pleased, and go to this mountain called Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering for me. Who does Abraham meet there when he by faith is prepared to sacrifice his one and only son? He meets the Lord. It becomes a meeting place. Then as the narrative goes on, we find this meeting place between God and Moses at the mountain, right? In Exodus chapter 3, God meets Moses on the holy mountain, or, or the uh, Mount Sinai. Take off your shoes, right? The place you're standing on is holy. 
goes and delivers Israel, and Israel comes once again to Mount Sinai, a mountain where God comes down to be present with His people, to meet His people. You know, and on and on it goes. You, you start reading more of the narrative of the Old Testament, and we eventually we come to a mountain called Zion. Right? Mount Zion. What was Mount Zion? What was so special about that? Well, that was where the temple was built. That is where God dwelt with His people. It's interesting that Mount Sinai, at least to my knowledge, is, not, is, is never referenced as the holy mountain. In fact, it is actually Mount Zion that is called the holy mountain. So we see this parallel here. Mount Zion. Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That holy mountain. right? Very important mountain. A mountain that, that is extremely important to God. It is His holy mountain. Well, why is the mountain called holy? Well, the mountain is called holy because that is where the presence of God dwells. Now note this, and here's the parallel. Here's the, here's the important connection. We referenced this passage last Lord's Day, Psalm 2.6. The Lord says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's installed his king upon Zion. Right. And in the fullness of Christ's coming as Lord and King and Savior, we understand that as the church, we have come to Mount Zion, but we have come to a, a new Mount Zion. In Hebrews 12, 22-24, we read this, but you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, right? So we are, we are members of a heavenly Zion. That is the scene of the church's worship worldwide. So there is a new Zion. You realize that what Peter is saying here would be very offensive to unbelieving Israel. Because the holy mountain that he is referencing in the book of 2 Peter is not Mount Zion. It's the mountain where they were during the transfiguration. But the reason that is significant is Peter is saying this was a holy mountain because God's presence was there. And we find that as His people, we now worship at this new Zion, at this holy mountain where God dwells with His people. So where is this holy mountain today? This holy mountain is wherever God's people are. Wherever God dwells with His people. That's why we read in the second chapter of Daniel regarding this rock cut out without hands, right? Remember that narrative? prophesying the kingship of Christ and the growth of His kingdom, it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And that mountain is currently, as we preach the Gospel, filling the earth. That is the Zion where we worship. Where we demonstrate to Christ our love and our praise and our adoration and even our obedience to be refreshed by His Word, to gain strength, to be faithful and to proclaim His Word among the nations. But listen to this, what Zion anticipates. So we find that this new Zion is going to be where Christ reigns. But also in Psalm 3-4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice and He answered me from His holy mountain. Right. He dwells with His people. Listen to Isaiah the prophet, chapter 11, 6-9. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. What is this signifying? Shalom. Peace on earth. 
Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. Now listen to this. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So if you go back and read the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11, this is a messianic psalm. This is looking forward to the new covenant. So from that we can surmise that this holy mountain in question is not limited to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which will be utterly destroyed at the coming in power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the new Zion, where all of God's people dwell. But look at verse 9 again. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why not? What's the explanation for that? Here's why. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the, water, as the waters cover the sea. See, we see here an earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord. But why is the earth full of the knowledge of the Lord? Because the earth is full, filled with the mountain of the Lord. That is why the knowledge of the Lord is everywhere. Because the mountain is everywhere. His presence, then, is everywhere. Listen to Isaiah 56.7. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. We see that quoted in the Gospel of John where Jesus has to go into the temple grounds and throw down because of all that is going on there. It's not a house of prayer, it's a den of thieves. But this looks forward to a greater time where the mountain of God is truly a house of prayer. It looks forward to the time of the new covenant where the church, called from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, composed God's people. Listen to what Isaiah 57.13 says. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. We, the church are, is the people who possess that holy mountain, who inherit the land. Because we are the ones who take refuge in Christ. Now listen to this one from Ezekiel 20, 40-42. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your holy things. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out of the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. Okay? And I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of all the nations. And you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give your forefathers. So, uh, a prophecy telling Israel that they will be regathered, right? They will be regathered back to the land. They will be in the presence of the holy mountain once more. And so the church, being the true Israel, experiences this very thing today. But the holy mountain has grown. The holy mountain is wherever the people of God are. And it prevails upon the church to proclaim the Gospel so that as the Holy Spirit works in Christ's church, we see that mountain fill 
the entire earth. Right? This is what it is to see the presence of God. And we see it in a fuller sense even than Peter did because Peter's back in the, he's back in the first century, right? He's, he's, he's relating what he said, but he only saw this in a very limited sense. But this was a preview of things to come. That the Lord Jesus would be glorified. That His presence would be with His people. That where He is would be called holy. So not only do we see this amazing preview of His deity and of His glory, but also of the fact that God, in keeping with His Word and all of His promises made to Israel, He would come to dwell with His people. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Psalm 22.27 says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Right? This, is, this is the ministry, friends, that we are engaged in right now. To see the presence of the Lord expand. To see the presence of the Lord cover the earth. We dwell with the Lord. We dwell in rest, right? We are in the presence of His rest. We are in the presence of His grace. The presence of His righteousness, right? Because when we point men, when we proclaim the Gospel, we point them to another mountain. And that's called Calvary, right? That's where we point them to. The mount on which Christ died, in which He made atonement for sin, so that by His blood, through faith in Him, we could receive cleansing, forgiveness, hope, and enter His presence. And enter all the rest and blessing and hope and joy that His presence provides. See, the presence of the Lord, when we are in Christ, right? He becomes the rock of ages cleft for us that we no longer have to dwell in some godless terror of the presence of God. Right? We dwell in faith. And as we dwell in the presence of God by faith, it becomes a dwelling in the presence of God in which there is all of that. All that joy, all that rest. And to cap it all off, it is a rest for all eternity. It is a rest that we never forfeit. And so remember that when you proclaim that, when you go and, 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 and stand as a witness of the power of Christ, that you witness... Not only the truth, not only His glory, not only His kingdom, but you are a witness to His presence. And what an encouragement for the church to be able to stand with truth and with integrity, to walk in righteousness so that no one can deny that the presence of God dwells with us. And so what do we do now if this has already happened? Well, we continue to be faithful to this calling, right? We proclaim. We proclaim that truth. We proclaim the gospel. What are the nations doing right now? Psalm 2 says the nations are raging. That's what we're witnessing. And I would say, let the nations rage. Let them rage. We are to proclaim the kingdom of God in its fullness so that God and His Christ will be glorified in all the earth. So with that said, let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for Your love and goodness to us. and We do thank You that we can proclaim this presence that You desire to dwell with Your people, to make Your glory known to us. We thank You, Lord, that 
That is what Peter is relaying to us. That he witnessed it. He was an eyewitness of it on that mountain. And that as we understand that you made the mountain holy, it's holy because you were there. It's where your presence is. That is a holy place. And Lord, as your people, uh, we are holy as well. And we thank you for dwelling with us. We thank you for your constant presence. We thank you for abiding with us. We thank you for forgiving us. We thank you, Father, for never leaving or forsaking us, but for always caring for us. Um, we thank you for your word, for the truth that you give us to continue to nourish and sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to find comfort in your presence, to not draw back in shame or fear, to not draw back in unbelief, but to come boldly to the throne of grace with joyful hearts, um, anticipating, Lord, all of your provision and promises. Pray, Lord, if there's anyone in here today who does not know you, who is outside of the presence of God, that you would humble their heart, call them to you, and grant them repentance and faith in your Son alone. Lord, we pray in light of that that you would also strengthen our faith, refresh us, Lord, encourage us. We know that so many of us are going through such difficult times, and we need you. And um, Lord, we do call upon your name, asking for you to strengthen us and bring healing and uh, bring a greater reliance upon you. So Lord, with that, we offer this prayer and asking that your word will continue to do its work as we dwell on your holy mountain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.